there have been studies showing that people that don't have access to organic will just buy less produce overall when they're being told, you know, conventional is poisoning you because then they're like afraid to buy fruits and vegetables, which is horrible. Welcome to Elevate the Podcast, a storytelling and business podcast where we interview and mastermind entrepreneurs in the agricultural, Western and rural space. On Elevate, we deep dive entrepreneur stories and share the problems they encountered and opportunities they created as a way to educate, inspire, and encourage the dreamer inside us all. We mastermind business ideas and deep dive topics to deliver tangible advice, useful tools, and bold strategies that we as entrepreneurs can implement to drive our own businesses forward. Created by Agriculture for Agriculture, Elevate opens the doors for rural, Western, and agricultural entrepreneurs so they can elevate themselves, their businesses, and the lifestyles we all love. I am so excited today to introduce you guys to Erin, the food science babe. She is coming on today as a part of our advocacy episode and going to be sharing all sorts of different things about her background, myths that she encounters online, and how she she comments all that misinformation. So Erin, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being on. I have been looking forward to this episode since we decided to record, like since we reached out to you and you said yes. So thank you for saying yes. I think it's going to be very valuable episode to our listeners. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe start with giving a little bit of background about yourself, what your degree is in and all of those things, all things Aaron. Yeah. So I have a, I have a BS in chemical engineering from the University of Minnesota. Right out of college, about 14 years ago, I started working in the food industry. Since I went to school for engineering, it was more on the engineering side of things, but I quickly realized that I wanted to be more on the product development side of things. So um, I got into product development and with my engineering background, I I sort of took food, you know, from the benchtop, developing it on the benchtop, scaling it up to a small scale pilot plant that I ran and then scaling it up from there to full scale production. So um, I got to see, you know, how a f- food starts from on the bench shop all the way till it gets onto grocery store shelves. Um, so I did that at a large ingredient company for about four years. And then I sought out a smaller, more natural company that aligned with my beliefs, you could say, at the time. Um, so a lot of the stuff that I, I debunk now are some of the things I used to believe. But I started working at this really small snack company and they were they were such a small company i one of my roles was to get like the non gmo verifications organic certifications and i started kind of questioning the labels which were things i sort of bought at the time and sort of believed the marketing and so just started kind of questioning what the labels really meant you know if there was really evidence behind the marketing and then It really wasn't until I had my daughter about six years ago that I really started, you know, looking into the research more regarding organic, GMO, all that kind of stuff. And just, you know, also my experience working in the food industry, realizing how much misinformation was specifically on social media regarding food, food science and nutrition. And that's kind of when I started my page and I was just like, I'm going to try to combat some of these myths. And I really had no idea that it would be end up being so popular. But yeah, that's kind of why I got it started. Yeah, it's so popular. I'm looking at your Facebook page and your Instagram page right now. I mean, you're talking like, are you just under a million total followers or so? I mean, you have hundreds. Yeah, about because I have like, I'm on TikTok too. And I have like 200,000 on TikTok. So yeah, with all three of them, that's probably around a million. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually going to say it 
the numbers alone are incredible. But I feel like, I don't know, I feel like when we share about these tough topics, I don't know about you, Aaron, but I don't know if you feel like it's harder for you to to grow because of, you know, the narrative against what we're up. Um, so the combined numbers of what you have, given the topics you talk on, um, I feel like it, it's something to be applauded for certain. Yeah, it is definitely frustrating to see the people that are, you know, sharing the misinformation and stuff like they still get way more views, way more followers. So it is still very frustrating. But yeah, I never thought it would grow to be where it is now. When you were working at like the the natural like food company, um, did you have, I mean, you talked about it a little bit. Was there kind of some aha moments for you that you were like, this is just not like, this is just not lining up for me anymore? Or was it just kind of that gradual, like just diving more and more into research? Like where was that transition for you? It was, yeah, I would say it's very gradual. It was also really, you know, it took a while for me to really even want to question my biases. You know, like once you have beliefs for so long, it's almost like you feel silly once you're like, oh, I believe this for so long and it might not be true. So I think it was really gradual for me because it was sort of something that I was like, well, I'm just going to keep believing this. You know, like, like I said, I mean, I was involved in a lot of the marketing meetings at that smaller company too. And I just really started realizing based on, you know, who the target market of your product is, that was where the decision was being made to get it non-GMO verified or organic certified because it's like, oh, well, we know this consumer is going to pay more for this label. And it really had nothing to do with the actual nutrition of the product. And so, yeah, I would say it was, I I mean, even at that time, I was just kind of like, huh, you know, like I still... I still bought it and I was like, well, I'm still going to buy this because I think it's it's better. But but yeah, it was really gradual. It really wasn't until after I had my daughter and I was like, okay, do I need to be spending more on organic for her that I really started looking into it just basically to save money and for myself just to kind of want to know. But yeah, I would say it was definitely really gradual and it was it was it's difficult to question beliefs that you have had for so long. I love that you said that, um, because I feel like pulling that out and making this like big picture, I feel like that is what we're up against sometimes when we share, whether we're sharing about GMOs or pesticides or, you know, cattle's impact on the planet and the climate. If we just keep in mind when it comes to sharing that sometimes it's easier for people to not have to question their beliefs. Cause like you said, it's what we believe for so long and the motion behind that. I just think that's really powerful that you said that, Erin. Yeah. And I've had, I mean, I've had some people too, you know, it's like, I've had some people comment, you know, the first time they comment, they'll be saying something like opposing what I'm saying. And it's like gradually as they like, you know, look at my videos and sort of look into the information, it's like, oh, you know, they'll start questioning it too. And then, you know, I get messages all the time from people that are like, thank you so much. Like I'm saving so much money. These are things that I believe for so long. I feel stupid. And I'm like, I was the same way. So I think it's, I always try to remind myself like how I felt at the time too. So like, I don't want to make people feel stupid for believing certain things because like I believed a lot of the things myself. So yeah, I think it's important too that I kind of went through that. So I, I understand how people feel when they maybe see one of my videos for the first time and they kind of get defensive. Like I understand why. Yeah, I think that your background and that like is very powerful. I think it's almost similar like when you have those people like on farms that grew up like in the city and then ended up, you know, 
getting married, moving out to the farm, and then they share. Like, I just think that when you can come from a place of being able to share and really having that understanding can go a really long way. That's why I don't, I always encourage one of Natalie and I's big thing is like you, everyone has a story to share because you just connect with people in different ways. And that is a really powerful way that you're able to connect with people. So I feel like I kind of want to get into some of your hot topics now of what you cover and like how you approach them. And I think probably the biggest one, like forefront of my mind with agriculture is I don't know, there's a lot, but right now I'm thinking GMOs. So maybe if you guys are good with that, we'll start with like GMOs and, and how you go about tackling that and what you really see online as the big misinformation. Yeah. So I think the biggest challenge with GMOs is just the lack of information out there on what it what it means. Like obviously the non-GMO label has just exacerbated that. People, you know, every anytime you see a label where it says like it doesn't contain something. You, The consumer automatically just like assumes that it's bad. Otherwise, why would there be a label that specifically says that this doesn't contain GMOs? And, um, you know, I was not really aware of what it actually meant for a really long time. And so I think the biggest gap there is just education, which is why I've tried, you know, I've made a lot of different videos just explaining just basics of genetics and like what GMOs actually are because a lot of people are avoiding it and it's like they don't even really understand what it is they just think it's bad because there's so many things that are labeled non-GMO but but yeah so I try to just like educate people on what they are and the biggest thing too is like the term GMO itself really isn't a scientific term it doesn't it's it's more of a marketing term because um, you know, virtually all of our modern day crops have been genetically modified in some way. And it's just these these more modern, more efficient ways of modifying crops are labeled as GMO and they are demonized when in reality, there's nothing inherent to what is considered GMO that makes it, you know, any less safe than any other way of modifying a crop. So what matters is the end product and regardless of what method has been used to genetically modify it. And the other thing is that any crop that is deemed GMO is much more regulated as well. So these are these are things that are studied more heavily. Um, you know, it takes a lot more research to prove their safety to get them into the market. So it really doesn't make any sense to be specifically afraid of these more modern, more efficient ways that we modify crops. And so, yeah, I mean, I just try to explain it to people and how that non-GMO label really is just a marketing label. Um, just because something is labeled non-GMO doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything about the safety or the nutrition of the food. And the, the most ridiculous thing about that label is that it can be put on anything, whether it has a GMO counterpart or not. So I mean, for example, you'll see it on orange juice and there are no GMO oranges. So it also not only does it just confuse people, but it makes people think that there are more GMO crops than there really are. I think there's like 11 or something like that. So not that it's a bad thing, even if something did have a GMO counterpart, but it just it misinforms people in so many ways. And, you know, people just end up avoiding GMOs without even really knowing what they are. It reminds me of when labeling does like gluten-free on things that could like never have gluten. Yeah. Um, and so I guess, I mean, my question kind of is, is like, where do we combat this at? You know, I mean, you said you like to share about it from an educational standpoint. So like, what exactly are you 
educating them on about the GMOs? I mean, like, where do we target this at? Because like you said, there's so many misconceptions about it. Um, I'm curious, like what you're hard hitting for the consumers that are concerned about it. I think it's just helpful to go through the different ways like crops are modified and to explain, you know, we've been modifying crops for a very long time. And um, there's this really good like infographic that I share a lot that just shows the different methods and like, you know, way fewer genes are affected with these more modern ways of doing it. So we understand more so like what's happening to the end product versus um, some of these older methods, which affect way more genes. And so I think just like explaining it. And I mean, one thing that always gets people's attention is when I talk about mutagenesis and mutant crops and how basically those are exposed to radiation and chemicals and basically just induces random mutations. And this is a way of modifying crops that can be labeled non-GMO and organic. And so it really is, I mean, when you like really understand that some of these ways that are, you know, target, you know, like they're not very targeted ways, they're very like random and they can be labeled non-GMO and organic, whereas these like more efficient, more researched ways can't be, they're labeled GMO. So really, I think like just explaining those things makes it, um, makes people kind of understand it more and see kind of how arbitrary that designation is. I feel like you do such a great job when you share that you do like break it down into very simple, like it's just easier. It's easy to understand, but I love that you like always back it up with really great sources. And I just think that your combination of that is something I truly admire and try to like emulate in my own things that I share of just keeping it as simple as possible while also backing it up with great facts. And at the same time, you keep a cool head also. Like I feel like sometimes when I'm sharing online, like I just get so heated and I just like the way that you approach these conversations just is just that understanding and that level headedness. How do you not, I mean, I'm sure you do get frustrated, but how do you keep that understanding level headedness in your posts? I think externally, I seem <laughs> more like that than I am internally because <laughs> um, I definitely get very frustrated. I just probably don't seem like it. And, you know, a lot of times, too, if I'm like really frustrated about something, I'm like, OK, I'll I'll cover this tomorrow because like I need to calm down. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely do get very frustrated, especially when it's there's just so many topics that I've just covered over and over and over again. And it's like, you know, another video will come out, I'll get tagged in it a million times. And it's like, there are specific topics. I'm like, I'm just done talking about this because I'm so sick of it. <laughs> but yeah, I'm glad I come across that way because internally I am very frustrated a lot of the times. <laughs> I think that's actually a really great point because Natalie, this is something Natalie and I talk about a lot is I feel like I share like that dairy accounts for, you know, 2.6% of greenhouse gas emissions like 1,000 times. And I like obviously still get so many posts uh, or comments and DMs from people, you know, disagreeing and being like, it's blah, blah, blah. And it's like, this, it's literally like, that's the EPA number. That's our US standard. Like, and I'm just like, how many times can I say this same fact before it like sticks with someone? Yeah, there's a lot of topics like that. And 
I mean, that's another reason too why I've organized stuff into highlights. So I can just say like, hey, check out this highlight so I don't have to like repeat everything a million times. Yeah, you do an amazing job of that actually. Like really how you run your social is um, like if you're listening and you have a social page and are looking for (laughs) ways to do things, like you do break down your topic so well that it's like, go here, look at this. I know I've even like, if I get a tough question about GMOs, like I'll go to your page, go to your GMO highlight and be like, okay, yeah, there's that source. Like that's such a great source or whatever that can help back up like what conversations I'm trying to have. Yeah, well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad they they help other people too, because I've spent a lot of time organizing those. So I'm glad that helps. I was going to say you do a great service where we can just pass the buck and be like, hey, go check out (laughs) Food Science, babe, actually. And we just hand it off to you. So thank you, (laughs) Erin. Yeah, well, you guys too. I mean, it's, it's good to have like a community of, you know, like the same thing with you. I mean, if there's something that I don't know in the egg world, like I'll tag farmers and stuff. So it's, it's good to have like people in different, you know, in the food industry, but in different areas. So we can like tag each other and help each other out. I know. I wonder how many farmers tag you like every single day. (laughs) Go follow her. Um, So I think one that I want to cover a little bit is um, something that Natalie and I actually talk about in the sustainability world a lot is the differences between Europe and the US. And I feel like you get so many things like in Europe, their ketchup is different than ours. Like for some reason, I can picture your ketchup uh, graphics. That's why I was thinking of it. And really, they're identical. It's just like how they label things or how they do things is different than us. It doesn't like make theirs any better or worse than ours. Um, So maybe dive into that a little bit, the difference between like US and uh, the EU. Yeah, that is one of those topics that I've covered so many times that um, just keeps popping up over and over again. And I think specifically on TikTok, I think these things happen because people see a video gets a lot of attention and then they just repeat it and then their video gets a lot of attention. But yeah, this is one of those topics that just doesn't stop. And um, so, yes, of course, there are, you know, you can take ketchup, for example, in the US and then one in, in Europe and Sure, the ingredients might be slightly different just based on different ingredient availability in different countries, different taste preferences. Yes, there are specific ingredients that might be banned in one country versus another, but that goes the other way too, which is something like nobody ever mentions. Like there's a lot of ingredients that aren't um, approved in the US that are used in Europe. We always hear about colors being banned in Europe, but in reality, there are more food colors approved in Europe than there are in the US. And really our regulatory frameworks are very similar. But yes, of course, there are going to be some differences for, for different products. And but a lot of the times too, like um, so, like those some of those labels that you were mentioning, sometimes it is pretty much the same ingredients, but they're just labeled differently. So that's another thing too. You know, our labeling regulations are slightly different. So I just talked about something uh, the other day that it's listed as high fructose corn syrup here in the U.S. And I hear a lot like, oh, that's banned in Europe. It's not banned in Europe. It's just labeled as glucose fructose syrup or fructose glucose syrup. So you won't see high fructose corn syrup, but that same ingredient is being used. It's It's just labeled differently in Europe. And that happens with a lot of different ingredients. Um, a lot of our additives in the U.S. are listed out as what they are, whereas in Europe, they're listed as E numbers. So it'll be the letter E with like a three digit number. So um, I've seen a lot of posts of people saying uh, specific colors are banned. And, you know, it's like, no, it's right there on the label. It's just an E number instead of an FD&C color. So, so yes, there are some banned ingredients which cause for differences. There are differences in just 
taste preferences, like I said, ingredient availability. But a lot of times when people are like comparing cereal product or uh, I don't know, I've seen one with oatmeal or ketchup, like a lot of times they are very similar products and there really aren't very many differences. And I just, this is just a narrative that is being like just repeated over and over and over again. And there's a, there's other, like, there's other differences too, where in the U.S., um, we have to list out all of the added vitamins and minerals in like a fortified flour, whereas in some countries they don't have to list out the added vitamins and minerals. And so I've seen ones of people saying like, oh, the U.S. one is worse because the ingredient, there's more ingredients. And in reality, there's not. We just have to list all of the vitamins and minerals out. So there's just a lot of differences like that. And these things really get sensationalized when you, but when you, yeah, I've, I've covered off on a lot of these things and it's like, no, these are actually very similar products. So. It um, reminds me they're in the ag space. I know that there are some like, you know, medicines like pharmaceuticals that like you have to have like a vet's prescription for in the U S and you don't like in EU and that people are like, you know, that antibiotic is like outlawed in the U in EU. And you're like, no, it's actually not. It's just, it doesn't actually have as strict of a requirement. So it doesn't have to be labeled the same. So it's like very similar in all yeah. different areas that we just have different labeling systems or different way of doing things. Yeah. And the other thing too, is, um, you know, people just assume as well that like, if something is banned in a, in any country, um, the assumption is that it must be unsafe, whereas that's not necessarily true. So a ban could just be due. I mean, a lot of these things are for political reasons. So Europe does tend to take more of uh, like a hazard based approach where um, something could be banned in Europe, whereas it's approved in the US, but it's regulated. So like um, that's the other thing, too, just because an ingredient is approved doesn't mean that we can just use it in food at any amounts that we want. So a lot of additives are regulated to specific amounts based on, you know, toxicity data. And so it, you know, it can only be included in specific foods at specific amounts. And so that's the other thing too. Like you can't just assume because something is banned in a country, that means it's unsafe at the amounts in foods. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the com- – I've seen you post a lot. This is, I feel like, one of your big stances is the dose. I think you say, like, the dose makes the poison. Am I saying that yeah, the way you yep. say it? <laughs> and I think that goes exactly to that, that, like – and I I think that goes with anything. Like, people – there's just so many times that people put, like, a single factor figure out and then don't give any, like, point of reference for what it means. Like, whether that's a percentage or, like, an amount, like, you know, five milligrams. And they don't give any – context to what that actually means. And I do know that's one thing that you hit really hard on is what what are we looking at this compared to? Where are the sources that are backing it up? How many, you know, what did the study look at? Um, And those are just, that just so gets missed so many times in these, like you said, viral sensations, like different videos. Right. Somebody will just say like toxic, you know, toxic chemical. And it's like, that doesn't really mean anything if you're not telling me what dose is in there. So yeah, I, I, I repeat that so many times, but it's like, if somebody's saying something toxic, you know, before you get afraid of it, like make sure they're providing a dose and evidence that it is actually harmful at that dose, because probably 10 times out of 10, actually, whenever somebody's saying something is toxic, it's really not. So Erin, correct me if you're wrong, but I feel like a lot of your content is actually like in response to, again, like one of these viral sensations that went off that was, you know, made by who knows 
what person with what background. And so you're we're almost kind of playing a little bit of the defense. Like it's like, okay, here goes another piece talking about X, Y, and Z. So now I need to address it. And so I just keep thinking, like when I look at your content and when I hear you talk, it's like, how do we go, you know, when we're talking about food and advocating for it and having like these scientific discussions, how do we go from playing like the defense almost to more of like the offense? Like how do we change this narrative that's out there? Yeah, that's something like I struggle with too. And it's difficult because um, I feel like my videos get a lot more attention when I'm like stitching a video and debunking it. And it kind of frustrates me because like I do, I also do a lot of videos that are just information. And it's like those just don't get as much attention because I, I, I don't know, it's just not as interesting, I guess, as like debunking something. So it is really frustrating because I do try to do videos you know, it's just like talking about an ingredient or talking about a food and they just don't get as much attention as when I stitch a video and debunk it. So I, I'm not sure, like I struggle with that too. I know. I'll be honest. I mean, I know what it's like to advocate for the different areas I do. And I just like, for lack of better words, I just, sometimes I look at your content. I'm like, that has to be so exhausting. You know, like you said, (laughs) the algorithm, like you're combating the algorithm and you're having to take, you know, play the game of like, what will get people's attentions, what will track them in. Um, Like, I know you're doing your part to just put out general information. And it's just, I just wish I knew better how we could help you. Because every time you talk, I also, or every time I see one of your pieces of content, I also feel like, I don't know, I feel like you're kind of like the lone wolf, like leading this area. I feel like there's a lot of people advocating for agriculture, the dairy industry, you know, there's a lot of farmers that could step up and do it. I feel like there's not a lot of food science babes out there that can step up, you know, to the arena and and like go, you know, toe to toe, like you do with the scientific information. Yeah, there are a lot of really great like dietitians that cover more, like I try to stay more in food science than nutrition, because, you know, there there are a lot of great dietitians that are kind of combating those nutrition myths and stuff. So sometimes our stuff overlaps, but then also, um, there's a lot of great people like in dermatology and cosmetics that a lot of like these very similar myths regarding food kind of cross over into that as well, just as far as like toxic ingredients and, you know, clean beauty is kind of the same as clean eating and stuff like that. So I'll share some of their content as well, because it's, it's very similar to the types of myths that I debunk with food a lot of the time. I actually remember when the whole like sunscreen came out and I followed you shared like four different accounts that were related to skincare and just like beauty products and that were science-based like you and I went and followed them all because I was like oh this is helpful like to I just feel like while we're all different like ag's different than what you're sharing and what you're sharing is different than what dietitians or you know we all have to like rely on each other on some extent because it is it is all similar misinformation I feel like if it's misinformation in one place it somehow like seems to just roll over into all of these other like facets of our lives. And so just having kind of those people that you know are sharing good information, kind of keeping them in your toolbox of these are great accounts to share can be can go a really long way. Yeah, definitely. One of the things, one of looking at your highlights, one of the things that I did want to talk about too is you mentioned it with the ingredient list, but I love um this is something also that a previous guest speaker talked about, Jack Bobo, is the ingredient list thing, like the whole, like, don't have things that have more than five ingredients, 
But uh, if you go to your highlights, like the, I think it's the basic science one, it has like what the ingredient list for like a banana is. <laughs> and like it's obviously, it's not an ingredient list, but I mean, it's what makes up the banana and it's obviously super long. Can you just share kind of a little bit about like putting those together and like how that, like the ingredient list, how did that become such a hot topic? Yeah, that's one of those, you know, there's so many of these like food mantra things that have just been going around for, you know, I don't even know where they originated. If it was like Michael Pollan books, I think a lot of them originated from. But yeah, it's just like these like, oh, you know, shorter ingredient lists mean it's better when it's like, no, that doesn't mean it's just because it has fewer ingredients doesn't mean something's better. But yeah, the other one too is like, if you can't pronounce it, don't eat it. Um, which doesn't make any sense because yeah, you can list out the chemical compounds in a banana and most people probably can't pronounce, you know, half of them. That doesn't mean a banana is bad for you or that like your body won't recognize a banana because you can't, you know, pronounce the chemical compounds in it. So there's just a lot of these like food rules that go along with the clean eating type of thing. And I mean, really, it just all goes back to the appeal to nature fallacy, which a lot of these arguments that I debunk are really just that in, you know, different different ways of saying it. But yeah, just because something is more natural does not mean it's safer. Just because you can pronounce something doesn't mean it's safer. You know, I, I've talked about risk assessment and hazard versus risk, but I've talked a few times too about like how humans are just intuitively very bad at assessing risk. And So intuitively, it's like, oh, I don't really understand what that is. So I'm going to be afraid of it, which, you know, is probably good in some regards for some things. But just because we don't, you know, we're not familiar with an ingredient, it doesn't mean that it's just automatically bad. Or, you know, if you don't cook with something in your kitchen and it's in a product, um, that doesn't mean that it's worse than something that you would have in your kitchen. So I think it is just like being unfamiliar with something and thinking like, oh, this, this might be bad. I'm not really sure about this, which is why I try to educate on ingredients that people might not be familiar with. You know, a lot of ingredients too in packaged foods are there because uh, they have to be on the shelf for longer than if you were to make something, um, you know, in your kitchen. And that also doesn't make it less safe just because it can last longer on a store shelf. These things that we're putting into foods, you know, they make it more accessible for more people. It can help to reduce food waste. And um, so, I, you know, I've seen a lot of that too. It's like, oh, if I make this in my kitchen, why, you know, it, I don't have to include this ingredient. So why is it included in the packaged food? And a lot of times it is just because like they have to travel longer distances. They have to be on the store shelves for longer. But that also doesn't make it less safe because like a preservative is in there or something. That is funny you say that because it makes me think about milk. Not There's not a preservative in milk, but milk shelf life is going longer and longer. And some of it's just better quality milk, better packaging, mm-hmm. better understanding of like, you know, not having cl- the clear gallon of milk actually makes it the milk go bad faster. And people will be like, what are they doing to milk these days? It makes it last longer. And you're like, oh, we're making better milk. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> but people get it in there. I don't know. People do get in their head about things when they don't understand it that they think then it's automatically like bad or somehow it's it's different in a bad way. Right. Yeah. Like you said, a lot of these things are actually like our food supply is so much safer than, you know, 50 years ago. And so like these things aren't, it's not bad that that food is necessarily like 
able to last on store shelves longer without causing foodborne illness. Like that's not a bad thing. I just keep going back to like, you just don't know what you don't know. And it's like, no one's, you know, it's really no one's fault. It's, I mean, there are people at fault who like, you know, create these viral videos out of fear-based marketing or, you know, like run with something in an area of expertise they shouldn't be. But like listening to you, like I'm kind of, I was kind of like sitting back, like I'm kind of one of those person that's like, I like to choose label. I like to buy goat milk from Mandy because, you know, like it has less ingredients on it than when I pick up like the Jurgens bottle, you know? And like, I'm like, I'm kind of one of these people that Aaron's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine too. I mean, it's like if it's something you prefer, that's fine. I think I think where it becomes potentially harmful is where you know, you're going to the grocery store and you're literally like afraid that if you buy something it's like harmful. You know what I mean? Like that's fine if you prefer things that have fewer ingredients just because like that's what you prefer, but Um, you know, the harm comes in when it's like you're every time you go grocery shopping, you're just like filled with anxiety because like everything you're reading is telling you that everything is toxic. And, um, you know, when you get into pesticide residues and, um, you know, the, the narrative of like conventional is toxic, you have to buy organic and you have so many people that don't even have access to organic. And then they just think they're, they like don't have a choice and they're just poisoning themselves and their family. Like that's sort of like where the harm comes in with all of this misinformation. And yeah, I mean, there have been studies showing that people that don't have access to organic will just buy less produce overall when they're being told, you know, conventional is poisoning you because then they're like afraid to buy fruits and vegetables, which is horrible. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the conversation around like milk and milk alternatives. Like I, I'm always like I I have an aunt who loves um almond milk and she's always like I'm so sorry I'm like no you don't you don't need to be sorry you choose whichever milk you want I just don't want you choosing almond or oat milk or whatever because a you think it's you know has the less of an impact on the environment and b because you like think it's healthier pick right. it because that's what you want to pick and that that's what you feel comfortable with for you know if you're looking for a lower calorie milk alternative almond milk is a great option um if you're looking for high protein then like almond milk's not a great option like just know the actual facts of it, not putting like these fears on top of it. Right. Exactly. And I I kind of have to, you know, Natalie was like, well, I don't think there's anyone to blame, (laughs) which I know there's not like, I mean, I think it's like all of our falls, but I even think like going back to ag, I do think even we do this. Like I just, I think of like the organic milk commercial that like, you know, quote unquote, I, in my mind, they kind of like demonize conventional milk. We I don't know. We add to this rhetoric when ag plays into it. And I just think we have to be like one of my big like soapbox. I'm always like, I think in ag, you can promote your product without putting down another product and being able to highlight the differences. If you're buying the local organic like honey instead of like the store, buy, I'm fine with you sharing like, well, this is local to our area and like, no, where the bees were at or whatever without saying, but the you know, honey, you buy the grocery store is bad or not pure. Like I hate when that's how the, when the conversation turns negative, I think is really when we're like just adding to and amplifying these messages. It confuses us as farmers and people that are in the industry. And if it confuses us on any level, it really confuses the consumers and just anyone else buying groceries at the grocery store. Yeah, I 100% agree. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the organic industry marketing is based off of like saying the alternative is poison or toxic. And like you said, I mean, I'm not, I'm not ever saying like, 
don't buy organic. You know, it's like I'm debunking these things that organic is using to market their products. And a lot of times, you know, I get people saying like, why are you against it? Like, why are you telling people not to buy it? It's like, I'm not. I'm just debunking the things that they're using to market. You know, rather than just saying what's good about their product, they have to go a step further and say like, the alternative is poisoning you. So that's why you have to buy our product. And yeah, like you said, like that's just not necessary. Yeah, like I'll just, I can use organic milk because I'm obviously the most familiar with it. But yeah, I'm like, do an advertisement that says our cows graze 120 days out of the year. Like that is a hard fact difference. I mean, some conventional dairies graze too, but like that is a fact. Our cows graze 100, whatever it is. I think it's 120 days. Um, And, or like we, we do not give our cows antibiotics, which I know, but like do it in a way that doesn't like make people assume that there's like antibiotics in every, you know, in other milk or like, I just think you have to be really, really careful and like conscientious of it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the problem, right? The people who are making the labeling and doing the marketing aren't. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And actually like that's the, and part of the problem is, is the people doing the marketing and labeling for like, say some big organic company probably don't even really know all the ins and outs of what's going into it either. So they're just looking for, you know, I mean, how do we sell this product? How will we, you know, move it off the shelves and without even being fully immersed in like what it means, uh, you know, that organic is a farming practice, not a health claim. And like, but that's a big difference that I don't think most people get. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Uh, In my experience, a lot of the marketing people I've worked with, they don't necessarily understand, you know, what those labels mean. So that's, I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's like, who's our target market? Will they pay more for this label? How do we get people to buy this at, you know, a more expensive price point? And a lot of times that just does come down to like bashing an alternative product. So yeah, that's a good point too. A lot of times the people that are doing the marketing don't even really necessarily understand what the labels actually mean or what they don't mean. Yeah, I feel like we came full circle to like where Aaron started being like, I was like working for a food company. Yeah. And like here well, we are. The, and the other thing that always frustrates me when I think about like marketing is that the person behind that that's in charge of it for like, you know, I don't, I mean, it's kind of an agriculture company, but they, they're just so removed from agriculture that I feel like that's a problem too. But like a lot of times I think about like the old fashioned red barn they put on the labeling. I just feel like, if we had someone who was in agriculture or more in touch with them in those positions, I feel like the marketing would be different. And so I feel like that's why I'm always like a proponent for like, we need more people from agriculture at the table in so many, like at so many different tables. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, well, I feel like Natalie, any other big, like pressing questions? Oh, well, yeah, that's so many. Our audience is going to be like, don't <laughs> stop now. But I mean, <laughs> it's already been like knocking on an hour. So we do have to stop sometime soon. But No, I just, I feel like, again, you know, my bigger questions are like, you know, what can we do to help you? Um, You know, what can we do for people who want to share, you know, and play a role in this? Do you have advice for them? Or like, you know, as a collective, like, what can we do to combat these narratives that are out there? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. Like, obviously, like if they're, it's hard too because a lot of people that do have expertise in these areas, like they don't have time to be on social media. Like this is very time consuming work. And unless you're doing like paid partnerships, like you're not getting compensated for it. So um, I don't ever want to tell somebody, oh, you need to get on and start a page because like I know how much work it is. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't necessarily seem worth it. But I think just for like people that, uh, you know, are just on social media, like following people, I would say, you know, try to follow 
people that are sharing evidence. And the other thing too, a lot of times is I, I appreciate getting tagged and stuff, but a lot of times that just increases like visibility of those posts when you're commenting on them. So another thing I tell people to try to help out is like engage with like our posts more. And, um, you know, I know sometimes you want to tag me on posts, which is fine, but like, I, I also try to do this myself is like not comment on these posts that are sharing misinformation because all that does is increase the engagement on their posts. So, you know, try to try to follow science, you know, creators and engage with their content, whether it's liking it or commenting on it, sharing it. That really helps. And I know reporting doesn't really do anything, but, you know, I'll I'll report stuff to when it's misinformation. But other than that, I'm not really sure. Like it's it's difficult and but I do think it is helpful to kind of have a network like we have of people that are more science communicators in a lot of different areas that can be boosting each other's content, you know, sharing it, asking each other questions. Cause obviously, like I'm not an expert in everything. You know, I have people in food safety that I contact a lot when I don't necessarily know the answer to something. So it can just be helpful when there are people to contact or if it's a specific like nutrition topic, contacting one of my dietitian friends, like, Hey, are you going to cover this so I can share it? So I don't have to make a video on it. Like that's just really helpful too. So I think it is just helpful. The more people we have not only creating science-based content, but just engaging with it, sharing it. Because it is, it's for every science account out, out there, I feel like there's like a hundred people sharing misinformation. So it's just really difficult to, there's just so many people out there sharing misinformation for every one account that's trying to combat it. So I think just the more people can engage with our content and like I said, share it, comment, that always helps. Well, we applaud you, Erin, and we thank you for all the work you're doing because it's really important. And Voltar and I really admire, you know, how you you share and you stay rooted in, you know, sharing information that's rooted in facts um, and really trying to combat the fear out there. So I'm going to plug you for you because I want to make sure I feel like I, you would steer away from this because you do have so everyone you can find Erin um, food science babe across all different platforms, right? You're the same whether it's TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, yep. it's food science babe. And there Erin does have ways to support her. So you know, you she has the Patreon, she has a merch store, she has one time donations. So like Erin has shared already, it's a lot of work to combat in these areas. It's important work. Um, and, you know, let's do our part to share where share her information or support her financially or whatever you can to kind of um, help her out because she's doing a lot for, you know, the food space. Yeah. And you can find that link in the link in her bio on her Instagram and I'm sure in other places as well. So um, go and support her. And like she said, as simple as just liking, commenting, sharing her post can go a really long way too. So thank you, Erin, for coming on. This is amazing. And I'm so glad you were able to share with our community. Yeah. Thank you again for having me. Thank you again to Erin for coming on the show today. We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. If you want to check her out further, we'll link everything in the show notes. And if you loved today's episode, we hope you'll take a screenshot and share it to your stories. Tag us and tag Aaron too. Let us know what you loved about the conversation. Also, let us know what else you'd like to hear from Aaron and others like her so that we can continue with these advocacy episodes.